Hello, everybody. Before we get into the show, there was just a couple things we wanted to share with you. Kind of puts a timestamp on this episode. Number one, the podcast awards are going on for 2016, and we'd love to have your nomination. You just head over to podcastawards.com, and you'll see that there's a ballot there, and there's lots of different categories. We'd love to get your nomination in the society and culture category, and if you're so inclined, the People's Choice podcast as well. You can vote in both of those categories for us if you like, and then make sure to put some of your other favorites in some of the other categories. You only get to vote once, so make sure you do it all at one time. And where it has what our website is, you just put in there, historygoesbump.com. And these nominations run through April 30th, 2016. Thanks so much. Second item is... Prince passed away a couple of days ago, and this really touched both Denise and I. As they said, his music was the soundtrack for our lives, and it really was for us. Uh, Both of us grew up during the 80s, and we thought that being that this episode is about the Dumas brothel, that it would be a fitting tribute to him to dedicate this show to him. He had a way of pushing the boundaries, being a little controversial, and intermixing sex and religion. And so it just seemed like the perfect place to give a tribute to him. So this one is for Prince. History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spooktacular people. Welcome to this 120th episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Denise. And on today's episode, we are featuring the Dumas brothel in Butte, Montana. And with that being said, we will give a little forewarning. We know that occasionally little ears like to listen to the podcast, and this might be one to pass over. At least mom and dad listen to it first. We're not going to get graphic about anything, but this is the sex industry, so there will be a little bit of talk about that. And Denise and I were just singing back and forth to each other. Let's talk about sex, baby. Let's talk about you (laughs) and me. (laughs) And now that we've lost all of our (laughs) listeners, we think you're going to enjoy this one. This is the longest running brothel in all of America, and it is the first brothel that we have ever featured here on the History Ghost Bump podcast. That's all this has been. It hasn't been a series of different things from a bar to a restaurant to a hotel, etc., It's only ever been a brothel, and now it's a museum, and apparently it's quite haunted. So we're going to share all of that with you guys. Before we do that, we do want to point you in the direction of our website, historygoesbump.com. Denise, if people want to send us some feedback, where can they do that? They can do that at historygoesbump at gmail.com. We did tell you about a trip that we took in Denver. We did a walking tour. We did a bonus cast that we sent out to our supporters, our executive producers. And inside of that bonus cast, we shared a couple of sound bites that we're going to share with you guys at the end of this episode. 
little bit of disturbances that we might have picked up on the recorder while we were outside one of the haunted locations. So stay tuned for that. Do you want to send a shout out to Karina? She sent us a marvelous email. I guess she had a horrendous experience during spring break, Denise, and we helped her make it through. Oh, yay. I'm so glad. So that's great to know. Also, Tara said that she was in Mexico in March and the nurses there wore scrubs. So we did have that question about our lunges in Mexico. Okay, yes. So they don't wear the traditional dress, so... Also, Jill Phoenix was commenting on that episode, and she said, Here in Texas, we have a lot of Aztec Mexican culture, and many Texans are raised being told the legends of La Llorona, the crying woman, to keep us inside at night. Close to San Antonio, we even have a woman hollering creek. Woman hollering creek is a creek located in central Texas. At one point, it crosses Interstate 10 between Zagin, Texas and San Antonio, Texas. Alternatively known as Woman's Hollow Creek, the creek's name is probably a loose translation of the Spanish La Llorona, or the Weeping Woman. Also, we were taught that El Kukui was a small monster who lived in the closet of the room you were not to go into. It has glowing eyes and is sometimes described as hairless, but most often it was described as very hairy. Also want to send a shout out to Mark Opian for all the suggestions that he has sent us. And you guys, we love getting your suggestions. You will never hear from us that that won't fit the show unless, of course, it doesn't have hauntings in regards to it. But we love to get your suggestions. So keep them coming. Just keep in mind, right now I have a scheduled through to the middle of July. We have another 50 locations that you guys have suggested. I have 10 on my personal list and they keep rolling in. So you might give us a suggestion. It could take six months or more to hear it because we only do about six episodes. But we are approaching the halfway point to our goal of $1,200 a month, which would get us so that we could bring you 10 shows a month, which would get us there a lot faster. And this comes from Alison Krasinski by email. First off, I can't express enough how happy I am to have found this podcast. I've been binge listening since the beginning of the year and have just caught up with this past week. Listening to you two has truly made the work week bearable. I wanted to respond to the previous comment on the felt mansion episode about the genus Loki. The mention of it actually made me stop what I was doing. I would like to confirm that I have experienced something similar to this. I was visiting Poland with family, and we took some time to tour Auschwitz. I didn't think too much of it at the time, but I remember two miles out from the camp, I got a headache that was so strong it made me nauseous. And I had had to take some medicine. Even with the medicine, the entire time we were there, the headache never let up. It wasn't until we were back on the bus and two miles out that it was suddenly abated. I am not one to get headaches, so I thought it was weird, especially with how suddenly it came and went. And to be honest, something like this has never happened again. And we also heard from Mariessa Dobrik. Call this my first ever podcast fan letter. I've had a very rough year and your podcast has continued to help brighten it. Thank you. It's rare that a podcast has the feel of community and yours does. And this would be a great time to congratulate Mark Nixon and Shadows at the Door for reaching their Kickstarter goal. They're going to be able to go ahead and publish their anthology. We're proud sponsors of that. And we are also producing a very special episode that's just for backers of that anthology. It's going to feature Haunted County Durham over in the UK. And Mariessa is helping me out with some of the research for that. I have spoken with Mark to see if people can donate after the fact so that you could get a hold of the episode because it's going to be available for anybody who's donated a dollar or above. And he's working out setting up a PayPal for that. And I will keep you updated on that as I find out more from Mark about that. And then you'll be able to get a hold of the episode and also be helping to sponsor that anthology as well, which is a bunch of indie horror authors. Is there anything better? 
We got an email from Dominique Tremblay. My husband and I found your podcast today and we are already hooked. Thanks for covering the Peoria State Hospital. I think it is awesome that the hospital was intended to treat the patients well and not like many other asylums of the time. I remember seeing signs for the hospital when I was young and living in Illinois. And she also gave us a suggestion for location and quite a few experiences that she had had there as well. So looking forward to sharing that with people. Jonathan Fishletter sent us an email. Last November, I learned about History Goes Bump from Jessica Chobot on the Bizarre States podcast and started listening to your most recent and then all past episodes. Well, after listening steadily since, I finally completed your entire library of past episodes. I've become such a huge fan that I turned my twin brother onto your podcast and gotten him just as addicted. He's nearly done with your past episodes as well. I loved your very topics and have enjoyed the format you've settled into from your entertaining banter to the moment of oddity and this day in history. As I've gotten caught up with your past episodes, you've become an important part of my morning routine. I will miss having so many episodes to listen to moving forward. And he also gave us a couple of suggestions. And he will be joining us on a future episode to share some haunting experiences that he's had at one of those. So looking forward to that. Rihanna sent us a message on the fan page. Oh my goodness, I just found your show today and I'm hooked. I've only listened to a few of the most recent episodes, but I've already recommended you to at least three other people, which we absolutely love. Look, guys, we get emails from you all the time saying, you know, I wish I could donate to the show. I just don't have the money. That is a great way that you can help out the show. Uh, you ladies are wonderful and the content is excellent. I'm looking forward to going to work tomorrow so I could continue to go through all your past shows. Can't wait to hear the USS Lexington episode. I'm from Corpus Christi and I know that ship well. Keep up the wonderful work. Thank you for making such a fun, informative, original podcast. Well, thank you, Rihanna. We appreciate that. And we want to welcome into the Spooktacular crew, Rihanna. Hey, Rihanna. Then there's Jenalina or Jenalina. Hello, Jenalina Lina. And then there's Mallory with an IE. Hey, Mallory with an IE. Mark. Hi, Mark. Marissa. Hey, Marissa. Casey. Hi, Casey. Calla. Hi, Calla. Bethany. Hey, Bethany. And Patty. Hey, Patty. All right, Denise, are you ready to go to the Dumas brothel? I guess so. <laughs> Become an executive producer of the History Goes Bump podcast for as little as a buck a month. For $5 a month, you can access exclusive content like the Haunted True Crime bonus cast. And for $10 and above a month, you get all that plus awesome History Goes Bump gear. Check out patreon.com slash history goes bump for more information. Or you can give us a one-time donation by clicking the donate button at historygoesbump.com. History is full of oddities, curiosities, mysteries, and the truly bizarre. Welcome to This Moment in Oddity. This episode's Moment in Oddity is by Bob Sherfield. In 1942, Jeffrey Pike, an English inventor in the employ of Lord Montbatten, the chief of combined operations, proposed a new material that he hoped would be of benefit to the Allied war effort. While working on the problem of how to keep ships in the North Atlantic free from ice, it occurred to him that using huge blocks of floating ice could provide a means of creating aircraft carriers that would be able to provide air cover for the vital supply convoys that were running between North America and Great Britain. When tests showed that neither naturally forming pack ice nor icebergs would prove suitable, he and his team of researchers came up with a composite material that would be strong enough to construct such a ship. The material, which came to be known as picrete, is made by mixing water and sawdust together in a ratio of 6 to 1. When combined, these materials produce an ice block, which has a slower melting rate than normal ice, and vastly improves strength and toughness. 
In fact, it is more like concrete than ice. It could be molded into any shape or form required, repaired, or maintained using seawater, and was extremely durable and tough, so long as it was kept at or below freezing. Plans were drawn up under the codename Project Habakkuk to determine whether a craft could be made large enough for land-based aircraft. It needed to survive both the rigors of the open sea and enemy attack. It soon became clear that the Berg ship, as it came to be known, would have to be 1,200 meters long and 180 meters wide with a 12-meter thick hull and required 16 refrigeration plants, as well as 20 external engines to propel it along at 7 knots. The project came to an end even though the U.S., Canadian, and British military all were seriously interested in building such a vessel. Spiraling projected construction cost and the sheer scale of the project, coupled with advances in other areas and unresolved problems such as how to steer the ship and how to keep the structure at minus 15 degrees, killed the project. The idea that the Allies planned to build a ship with a displacement of 2.2 million tons out of ice certainly is odd. Afraid of the dark? <laughs> That's just silly. What you should be afraid of is the thing that watches you sleep. <laughs> this day in history. This day in history is brought to us by Jessica Bell. On this day, April 24th in 1895, Joshua Slocum began his solo trip around the world voyage. Slocum was born in Nova Scotia, Canada in 1844 and became an American citizen at the age of 16. He began as an ordinary seaman and worked his way up to captain. He married in 1871 and his wife accompanied him on his voyages bearing four children aboard the ship. The seas were his home as he transported goods to and from the California coast, China, Australia, the Spice Islands, South America, and more. His life as a captain was an interesting one. His wife died on one of the voyages. He faced a mutiny in which he shot two men. He overcame disease, married his second wife, gained and lost commands, and finally ended up in Boston, Massachusetts in 1890. As steam power supplanted the sail, Captain Slocum's hard-earned skills were in less demand. So he decided to write a book of his memoirs, and unfortunately, the sales of the book were less than stellar. In need of a change in adventure, on April 24, 1895, the 51-year-old Slocum sailed alone out of Boston in his 11-meter, 37-foot sloop named Spray, a decrepit oyster dredger that he had rebuilt himself. Slocum's plan was to cross the Atlantic towards the Suez Canal. When he reached Gibraltar, he was warned by naval officers regarding the presence of pirates, and he changed his course. He started back across the Atlantic and headed towards the Brazilian coast, through the hellish Strait of Magellan. It was there that he faced a violent storm that ripped the sails from the ship, and there was nothing he could do but to keep on and go east as the only safe course lay in keeping the ship before the wind. During the rest of his voyage, he faced deadly currents, rocky coasts, and heavy seas as he sailed around Australia, the Cape of Good Hope, and across the Atlantic. Over three years later, he and the Spray returned on June 27, 1898, completing a journey of 46,000 miles as the first man to sail around the world solo. His adventures were first published in Century Magazine 
and then in book form under the title of Sailing Alone Around the World in 1900. His book earned him a large income, but it was not enough to sustain him and his wife, and he found he was not suited to a settled land-based life. In hopes of another book deal, he set sail in 1909. It was on this final voyage that he disappeared while aboard his famous boat, The Spray. You're listening to History Goes Bump. This episode is suggested by listener Julie David, and our research assistant was April Rogers Crick. Butte, Montana has its roots in mining. The town came to be known as the richest hill on earth, and gold, silver, and copper were all mined here. As was the case with so many mining towns, a successful red light district grew within the town. One of the most successful and high-class brothels in town was the Dumas Brothel. Rich clientele could have their fantasies met here, but there was also pleasure for the working class in the basement, which ran like a sex mill. The brothel passed through many hands and has the reputation of being the longest-running brothel in the country. And it seems that clients and the girls are still hanging out here in the afterlife. Several entities are thought to haunt this building. Join us as we explore the history and hauntings of the Dumas brothel. The fact that Butte was rich in mining material brought many immigrants to the area from all over the world. There were the Irish, the Italians, Eastern Europeans, and the Chinese. The influence of these immigrants is still represented in Butte today via a bakery specialty enjoined mainly during the holidays. The pavitiza is a Cornish pastry made from dough, nuts, and vanilla. This was something the miners could eat easily while they worked. There's also Scandinavian lefse that has remained popular in the region as well. Butte separated into immigrant areas with their own gangs featuring the Eastern Europeans of the McQueen edition, the Irish of Dublin Gulch, and the Italians of Meterville. Butte also had its own Chinatown. The Chinese Exclusion Act was passed in 1882, and this halted Chinese migration. This federal law was signed by President Chester A. Arthur and was the most restrictive bill on immigration ever passed in the U.S. It prohibited all Chinese immigration into the country and was the first law that prevented a specific ethnic group from entering the U.S., This was not repealed until 1943 via the Magnuson Act. There was much anti-Chinese sentiment that began in the 1870s, and it only grew forcing Chinese business owners to sue the unions, and they won. You know, a lot of these Chinese laborers helped to build this country, especially the railway and such. And so it's just interesting to see that there was this much of a restriction against them coming in. I know, it's just, I mean, when you look back at our past sometimes, it's like, holy cow, the way we treated people. Exactly. I think we talked a bit about the Chinese when we did our episode on Tombstone. And, you know, a lot of the Chinese there, there was a lot of anti-Chinese sentiment to them there as well. Glad we got rid of those restrictive immigration bills for sure. No kidding, because, I mean, this is going to sound flippant, but I, I love Chinese culture and their food. Yes, you would be very upset if their food was kept out, for sure. Yes, I would. Women saw mining towns as wonderful opportunities to make money. Their services were needed in housekeeping and cooking, of course. And then there was the sex industry. Pimps and their girls followed the miners to Butte from all corners of the world. Prostitutes usually went by generic names such as Jew Jess or Mexican Maria. And their pimps were referred to as John McGuimps or secretaries, which was a more refined epithet that was peculiar to Butte. 
More sensitive to the rights of working people than to those who exploited them, the local police were especially hard on pimps and would often run them out of town when they were identified. A group of women called Ladies of the Line began selling sexual services on Park Street, located in the north part of the city. Tents and shacks lined the street and were used solely for the purposes of prostitution. At some point over the next 20 years, the tents and shacks were replaced with legitimate businesses. The Park Street girls, as they had come to be known, moved to the south side of the city. And I can't imagine in the heat of summer, tents and shacks and that kind of stuff going on. <laughs> of course, anytime I think back to that, I think about those dirty miners and just, ugh. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Diane. <laughs> and off she goes running. By 1888, Butte's East Galena Street was lined with brothels. Nearly every building on the street housed prostitution. The area of Galena Street came to be known as the Twilight Zone. Prostitutes plied their trade from rooms or spaces called cribs that were equipped with call boxes for ordering drinks or food from nearby bars and noodle parlors. Evidence of these cribs can be seen in the narrow doorways of the buildings that lined the street. The largest of these establishments was the Casino Theater, a mixture of saloon, dance hall, and brothel. The casino employed 100 girls. In the late 19th century, several prominent Montanans owned brothels in Butte. Two of these men were Lee Mantle, who later became a United States senator, and Anton H. Holter, a wealthy businessman from Helena, Montana. Isn't it interesting how they call the spaces that they worked in cribs? There's just something sick about that. I know. It's like, hey, it's the crib. Well, it could be because now that isn't that kind of like a gangster to say, this yes, is my crib. That's the hipster thing to do. Hey, this is my crib. But yeah. Hey, look, we sound hipster. Well, you know, maybe they don't want to call them cribs after all. <laughs> Why not? Check, they... check out my crib. Who well, then, then again, they wear their pants halfway down there. Never mind. I wasn't going to go there, but, <laughs> but I did. <laughs> Josh will be so proud. <laughs> French-Canadian brothers Joseph and Arthur Nado would eventually acquire the most property in Butte's prostitution areas or red light district. The brothers built a brothel in 1890 at 45 East Mercury Street and named it for Joseph's wife, Delia Nado, whose maiden name was Dumas. Now, I don't know if she was very honored by that, but hey. Hey, honey, I love you so much. I'm going to name my brothel after you. And you got to <laughs> wonder what the wife is thinking. Hey, this is a great idea. Let's build a brothel, honey, and get rich. But you know what? This isn't going to be the first husband and wife team here. We'll find some more in the future. Okay. By the turn of the century in Butte, more discriminating clients could visit three high-class sex houses in Butte. The Hotel Victoria, the Windsor Hotel, and the Dumas Brothel, also known at times as the Dumas Hotel, although I think everybody probably knew what it was. The Dumas Brothel is a two-story brick building facing Mercury Street, built in the Victorian style. It's all brick. There's a raised basement level that backs onto Venus Alley. The upstairs has several large rooms and suites and a large open balcony with skylights. This area was for the people with money who wanted to fulfill their sensual desires with a beautiful, well-dressed prostitute in a private, comfortable room that included the bells and whistles of the privileged. As to what those bells and whistles are, we won't uh, elaborate. Politicians and wealthy businessmen enjoyed sex with these stunning young women whom they would hand-select. These well-appointed ladies would sit in one of the parlor rooms, waiting to be chosen for their next intimate encounter. From 1890 to 1942, the basement area was reserved to meet the sexual desires of the common man, the miner. Dumas Brothel had an ample basement where miners with less money could go to enjoy sex with the not-so-pretty and older prostitutes. 
each of which would work out of a tiny cubicle just big enough for a bed called the crib. There were 43 cribs that were operational around the clock, using three shifts of women to cover the demand during the busy weekends and on payday. As the miners were assigned one of the three shifts at the mines, it was just good business to be open 24 hours a day. Originally, a stairway led downstairs from the front sidewalk. There was a door in the basement that opened up into the underground tunnels that ran under the city of Butte as well. Through this door, men could enter discreetly and enjoy some sex with a woman. It is claimed that these tunnels circulated out to other brothels and even <clears throat> City Hall. There was also access from a back door of the Dumas that opened into Pleasant Alley near South Wyoming Street, which was the busiest section of Butte's red light district. Where did we hear about these tunnels circulating underneath the city to other hotels and things like that? We heard about in that our, in another city. In our, in our beloved Denver, Colorado. <laughs> yeah, on our pub crawl. We had no idea that Denver had underground tunnels, and we got to see a couple of them. Sure enough, that's what they were meant for, so politicians could discreetly come on over to the red light district, and nobody would know what they were up to. So I imagine most big cities that ran this way had those underground tunnels. During its earlier history, two boarders at the Dumas brothel listed their occupations as gambler and saloon man in census records. So one can see that there were efforts to cover up the true purpose of the hotel. By 1900, the brothel was being run by Madame Grace McGinnis, her servant, a Chinese cook, and four prostitutes. At that time, the cost of sex in the brothel was 50 cents. The women were only allowed to keep 40% of their earnings, but some received high tips from their clients, making the business lucrative for them. This enabled them to dress in fine clothes, making them appear to be just another fine lady about the town. One such lady was a French prostitute named Sandra. It's thought that she was probably brought in illegally from Canada by the Nado brothers. She was a petite woman who was incredibly popular with the men because she knew a lot of techniques that were described as satisfying to her customers. The authorities eventually caught on that Sandra was here illegally. Before they would raid the Dumas brothel to look for her, police would call ahead so that the politicians could get out. Sandra would get the warning as well and took to hiding an especially made refrigerator. The latch on the refrigerator was broken, and so it was thought that the door would not open. But the truth was that the inside was fitted with a lock. Sandra would climb into the refrigerator and lock it from the inside. When the police would try to open the door, it would not open, and they would be left to believe that it was just a broken handle. Sandra was never caught, and she made a good living until she retired at the age of 61. You go, girl. Despite the large size of the brothel, Madame McGinnis had only five girls and a musician working for her in 1902. During this time, the Dumas and other light businesses in Butte's red light district were unusually lucrative ventures that were frequented by miners from the local Anaconda Copper Mining Company. In 1903, traffic grew to a point where the Dumas operations had to be expanded and more cribs were built in the basement of the house. Even though the Dumas operated 24 hours a day with several girls taking three shifts, by 1910 there were only two women reportedly to actually be living there. Instead, the prostitutes lived in other parts of Pleasant Alley and commuted to the brothel for their shifts. In Butte, the activities of the city's prostitutes were generally restricted to Gallon and Mercury Streets. From the windows of the street facing the cribs, the girls would attract prospective clients in various states of undress. The Butte Miner, a local newspaper, explained how the girls did this. Quote, 
With an abandon that has no trace of modesty in it, these women lean out of their windows and address the vilest kinds of language imaginable to people passing on the street, or else boldly make their appearance on the thoroughfare and visit from one crib to another, end quote. I just totally can envision this in my head with these girls hanging out with their tops off, waving to the guys below, saying, come on up and see me sometime. (laughs) Oh, and the vilest kind of language imaginable. Hmm. Who knows? Back then it was probably like, hello. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) You're vile. You woman of the devil. The Dumas's business and those like it were criticized by a number of people who sought to reform the red light district. Reverend William Beterwolf condemned Butte as, quote, the lowest sinkhole of vice in the West, end quote. And that he saw, quote, enough legitimate vice in Butte to damn the soul of every young man and young woman in it, end Pre- quote. Precisely why I just said what I did, because <laughs> that was kind of the fill of the reporter. Indeed. He held revival services for residents which attacked rounders, gamblers, and habitues of the red light district. The opposite opinion was held by the local business as they benefited and even came to depend on the support of the sex workers at the Dumas and other places of business like it. The prostitutes would buy their dresses at local clothiers, frequent the city's dry cleaners, and would patronize Chinese herbalists looking for birth control potions and venereal disease remedies. $5 quote-unquote fines were paid to the city government and police to make sure that their operations were unhampered. Uh, Can we just say bribes? (laughs) Oh, fines. Instead of closing and relocating the red light district, the mayor and police of Butte ordered that the women wear longer skirts and high-necked blouses and that they refrain from indecent exposures. So I guess they couldn't lean out the windows without their shirts on now. They had to wear basically turtlenecks. After their ordinances were put in place, the Butte miner reported that, quote, Nothing was seen in the district except long dresses and long faces. What the women say about the matter is not fit for publication. <laughs> <end quote. laughs> yeah, so I guess that's where the vile language really was. It wasn't from just hanging out of their window. <laughs> it got vile the more they the more they got dressed, the viler they got. <laughs> By nineteen ten the people were petitioning Mayor Charles Nevin to shut down the district. With the district contributing $2,000 to the city's coffers every month, the efforts eventually died. That mayor's like, no, we're making a lot of money there. Forget it. In 1913, the brothel was expanded again. A one-story structure was added to the building, increasing the number of cribs by eight. Four of the added cribs opened directly onto Pleasant Alley, by that time known as Venus Alley. When copper prices went up, the more than 14,000 miners in the city experienced a pay raise of 25 cents and injected an additional 6,000 into Butte's economy. During this time, the Dumas experienced an upswing in patronage. In 1916, as a result of the added clientele, the brothel added five partitions and a staircase and a ground floor, once a grand parlor, was partitioned into cribs. With the onset of World War I and Prohibition, local lawmakers began to crack down on Butte's red light district, and by 1917, the district was effectively closed. Signs saying men under 21 keep out were commonplace, and in the next census, prostitution had completely disappeared as a declared profession in Butte. Undeterred, the Dumas Bravo remained in operation. I find it interesting that they would have declared that they were prostitutes on the census. You know, I guess if it was okay back then. Anne Valet began overseeing the Dumas for the Nadeau family in 1925, and by the 1930s, operations had passed to Madame Rose Davis. In 1940, Lillian Walden and her husband Dick, there's a husband and wife team, 
began running the brothel. Under the new management, the price of sex at the brothel was raised to $2. In 1942, the federal government ordered all open brothels in the United States to shut down. This was done to protect their war effort. They said it was to prevent the spread of venereal diseases among soldiers in World War II. So apparently they thought if they visited all these brothels, they'd get diseases and then they wouldn't be good fighting men. I guess so. Does anybody believe that these guys weren't visiting brothels somewhere at some point? Let me see. It was a world war and they were in a lot of different countries. So Mm. hmm. the boom from the Butte vice industry was curtailed sharply at many of the once open brothel establishments. The underground passages were closed and all that remained of the popular Venus Alley were the red bricks of the original alley. Besides having to knock down the cheap addition in the back of the Dumas brothel, the cribs in the basement were sealed as well, with everything left behind by the women. Much of it is still there to this day, creating a time capsule, and you can see this stuff at the museum. However, the first and second floors and rooms were still discreetly open for business, and the quote-unquote action simply moved upstairs, becoming more hidden from prying eyes, making it hard for the law to prosecute them. That is, if they even wanted to. The window shopping was abandoned completely, much to the disappointment of the clients, and I'm sure anybody passing by on the street. Clients of the brothel now called it the Dumas Hotel. They would come to the front door, and after being studied through a door hole, they would be led inside to a parlor where a few available women would be seated, waiting to be chosen. In addition, doorbells were added, and a code system was employed for use in dealing with troublesome guests. It is interesting that a lot of these older brothels have now become museums because remember we visited that one in Alaska. That is correct. That's true. And they were kind of celebrating or or going through the history of of what it had been. Yeah, I don't know if it's so much celebrating, but it's um, kind of honoring it because when you think about it, when women are in this trade, and this is where you can kind of get into some political stuff, you know, they were doing what they needed to do to get by at the time. In 1950, when Lillian Walden retired, the price for a woman of the brothel was $5. Next, Eleanor Knott took over running the Dumas. The Nadeau family ceased to be in owners around this time as well. Knott only managed the Dumas for a short time as she committed suicide in 1955 after her lover died of a heart attack. On February 8, 1955, Eleanor Knott had made a decision to change her life. She had decided to run away with her lover and start a new life. Her lover was a married Butte businessman. Eleanor waited patiently with suitcase in hand, but her lover never showed. In the morning, Eleanor was found in room 20 of the Dumas, dead from an overdose of sleeping pills and alcohol. Eleanor's life had been very financially rewarding, and she possessed a number of worldly goods, including a nearly new red Cadillac convertible, gold and diamond jewelry, cash, and a new Harley Davidson that she had just bought. The motorcycle, she told friends, was purchased to put some fun into her life. After her death, none of these things were ever found or reported through the estate. Bonita Farron was the next madam to take over the reins of the Dumas in 1955, and she stayed in charge until her death in 1969. In the late 1960s, several local police officers took the initiative to close the remaining three operating high-class sex houses— Hotel Victoria, Windsor Hotel, and the Dumas. The Dumas did not remain closed for long, and Madame Farron had it back up and running. In 1970, the Dumas was listed in the National Register of Historic Places as a Victorian brothel and an active house of prostitution. In 1971, Ruby Garrett, a local resident of Butte for some 30 years, purchased the Dumas. Garrett would pay local police officers and officials $200 to $300 a month in return for their silence about the Dumas's activities. 
Under Garrett, the cost of a prostitute was $20. In 1981, Madam Garrett was charged with tax evasion. She was convicted of federal tax evasion and served six months in prison in 1982. The brothel was closed soon after, but not before a robbery took place there. On March 17, 2012, Ruby Garrett died at the age of 94 at Crest Nursing Home in Butte. She was remembered as a kind woman in her later years who looked out for her working girls. Garrett had also served nine months of a four-year sentence for manslaughter in 1960. A victim of spousal abuse and so badly beaten that she was unrecognizable, Garrett walked into a card game her husband was participating in and shot him five times, killing him. She was charged with first-degree murder, but the jury felt manslaughter was the strongest charge that they could and would impose. Good jury. Well, maybe shooting him five times is a little overkill. <laughs> maybe she should have waited until he came home and was swinging. When the Dumas closed, it was the longest operating brothel in the United States, having operated for 92 years, long after prostitution was outlawed. Unable to pay taxes on the Dumas, it was sold by Garrett in 1989 to an antique dealer named Rudy Geisick on the condition that it was preserved in its original state. Geisick turned the brothel into a museum and operated it as such for most of the 1990s. Due to financial difficulties, Geisick attempted to sell the building in 1998. The International Sex Worker Foundation for Art, Culture, and Education, ISWFACE, the ISWFACE sought to reopen the Dumas not only as a museum but also a gallery and convention center. Ellen Baumler of the National Register of Historic Places wrote in support for the rescue of the Dumas that, quote, it is not only significant as the last standing parlor house in this area of Butte, but also because of its length of operation as a rare, intact commentary on social history. Many people were against the restoration of the Dumas, including the former prostitutes in Butte, but operations proceeded. Then in September 2000, Geisick claimed that the ISWFACE owed him $52,000 in wages for work performed at the Dumas. Geisick sued and was granted the wages he petitioned for and additional penalties. The business deal with the ISWFACE was terminated, however. In the years that followed, the Dumas was put up for auction twice as Geisick did not have the money to maintain the building. In May of 2005, Rudy Geisick closed the Dumas brothel permanently. He was concerned that a collapsing back wall made it unsafe for tourists to walk through the cribs and access the second floor of bedrooms. Geisick had attempted to sell the Dumas, even using eBay as a way to dump the building, but back taxes and liens made it impossible to sell. Uh, I don't know that I've ever seen anybody try to sell a brothel on eBay before. You can get anything on eBay. That's true, and I bet if you told them it was a haunted brothel, it would sell even better. They get all kinds of money for haunted dolls on there. Former Surgeon General Jocelyn Elders took on a fundraising campaign to help the Dumas brothel. She worked with the ISWFACE and attended a fundraiser in Butte, and she shared her controversial side while there, saying, quote, I always tell young people the vows of abstinence break more easily than a latex condom, end quote. Elders spoke about prostitution and many of the reasons women get involved in it, including poverty and the fact that several are forced to work in the sex industry. The negatives were discussed as well, from disease to women being beaten by pimps. One woman disagreed and said, quote, I choose to be a prostitute because everyone is good at something and I know what I'm good at, end quote. Well, you go, girl. ISWFACE wanted to restore the defunct Dumas brothel in Butte as its international headquarters and as a museum. It is trying to promote health care and workplace rights for those in the sex trade, as well as legalization of prostitution. 
elders encourage the prostitutes to keep up their crusade and not to shy away from controversy. It's controversy that gets the press, she advised. You know, I know that. In 2008, the Dumas reopened for tours. Michael Pitch and Travis Eagleson of Butte bought the brothel in 2012 with plans of improving the beleaguered building in the middle of Butte's former red light district. In December 2013, an urban revitalization agency considered a $92,000 loan request for repairs and shoring up outstanding debt for the historic Dumas brothel. Even though it was listed on the National Register of Historic Places and operated as a museum, it had slipped even further into disrepair and had significant structural problems. At the current time, the Dumas Brothel is open for tours April through September, Tuesday through Saturday, 11 a.m. to 4 p.m., restorations permitting. A small gift shop is available on-site. Proceeds from the gift shop and tour entrance fees are used for restorations. Do we even want to ask what's in the gift shop? (laughs) Diane. I know what I'd be selling in it. (laughs) Feng shui? Yeah, feng shui, all right. Brothels seem to attract ghosts in the same way theaters do, and it could be for similar reasons. Strong emotions pass through brothels. No matter how well the prostitutes were treated, the life of a prostitute was not a happy one. It was very dangerous to the women's health. There was the unwanted pregnancies, complications of an opium-induced abortion, venereal disease, and there was even the chance of being murdered by a jealous client or boyfriend. Entities that die unexpectedly on the job sometimes continue in their profession after death. Eleanor Knott did not leave the brothel after she committed suicide. Working girls of the Dumas reported seeing the ghost of Eleanor with a suitcase in her hand walking the halls. Many believe she is still searching for her lover. Her full-bodied apparition has been seen by visitors to the Dumas as well. Dramatic photos have been taken of her apparition all through the Dumas. She also seems to be a strong protective spirit of the building who encourages and leads the others as well. The women who worked on the upper floors enjoyed a higher class of clientele. The women who worked in the basement may have ran into a few men with anger management issues. The remains of a blood-stained handprint can still be seen on an inner wall of a crib room that also had a badly damaged door jam. This was discovered when the basement crib rooms were unsealed by Rudy Geisick. It is extremely possible that a prostitute was killed in her crib where she worked. Other prostitutes simply overdosed or committed suicide. In 1917, a young prostitute named Sarah worked at the Dumas brothel. She had a client named James that she had every intention of marrying. James sent her a love letter and she displayed it in her crib. James was killed in a mine explosion the day after she received the letter. Sarah either accidentally overdosed or deliberately killed herself using an opium-based drug used by the women to medicate themselves or cause abortions. After the 2013 renovations began, the Dumas was overrun with paranormal activity. Noisy activity was unmistakable, coming from the basement area, perhaps sounds heard in a brothel. Sarah became very active as these massive renovations got underway. Possibly Sarah and the other spirits were upset with all the new people and renovation workers in their house, messing with the cribs and their leftover personal artifacts. Paranormal investigators believe that something in her belongings that had once been sealed had now been opened, causing her to be more restless than the others. The new owners, Travis Eccleson and Michael Pitt, were scared to death by the paranormal activity. They asked an investigation team from the Haunted Collector to come in and see what was causing the spirit's unhappiness and perhaps uncover what this entity wanted. Haunted Collector aired their episode on March 20th, 2013, 
and they reported their findings. They found some hard evidence that pointed to a prostitute, Sarah, as the most restless spirit by catching her on a couple of EVPs in her crib room. When investigators picked up a letter from her minor boyfriend, James, that was still on display, the bed shook, and this was caught on camera. The team brought out a bottle of the opium medicine they think Sarah took that killed her. The activity increased until they removed it from the building. This medication was never brought back inside the brothel, and Sarah seems to have moved into a state of peace. Male entities of minors seem to like to relive their special recreation time with their favorite lady in the basement as well. Smoky mists have been seen and disembodied voices have been heard in the first floor areas. During a tour, a latched door unlatched itself in front of a group of witnesses. The strong scent of cigar smoke comes and goes most often on the first floor. The entity of Sandra, a French prostitute, has tenderly touched people and held their hands. An EVP was caught in the madam's room by the haunted collector's group as well. One male entity has been caught on a photo by an investigator. He was wearing a miner's outfit, including a bandana. A male and female entity were caught on camera near the basement door that led to the tunnels that ran through the red light district. The male is standing on the right, looking down at the female, who seems to be wearing a large hat, or she has a lot of hair. When Rudy Geisick owned the building, three teens broke into the Dumas brothel. They grabbed some stuff from the antique photo shop in one of the first floor parlors. When they started up the staircase to the second floor, they were stopped in their tracks by an avalanche of flying china dishes. The frightened thieves did an about face and made a hasty retreat out the back door. No one knows what caused those dishes to fly at the young men. I guess it's a good thing it did. It sure stopped them. Uh, Of course, I don't know how valuable the china was that probably got broken everywhere. Apparently, the ghosts were protecting their residents. They knew those guys were up to no good. Of course, the china pieces could have gone up in value if it was a a dish thrown by an an entity. Well, that's true. Put that out on eBay. These pieces of a dish were thrown by a ghost. $500. And then it would go up from there. (laughs) This broken dish is haunted. So, do the spirits of former prostitutes still turn their tricks at the brothel in the afterlife? Are spirit miners still looking for a good time at this location? Is the Dumas Brothel haunted? That is for you to decide. Interesting museum to check out if you were ever in Montana. Sounds like a good place to stop. Definitely won't be there in the winter. No, we're not going to Montana in the winter. (laughs) No how, no way. On our next episode, we're going to another asylum. This is the Athens Lunatic Asylum, and it was suggested to us by our listener, Tracy Martin. So we're looking forward to finding out more about that. And speaking of snow, Denise, we were in Denver. As we told everybody, it was a bit snowy there. And we took a walking tour of the Capitol Hill neighborhood. And we stopped at a particular haunted building called the Croke Patterson Mansion. This one has always held a quote-unquote special place, I guess you could say, in my heart. It's the second time I'd ever had a paranormal experience, and I was just a teenager at the time. So I have long thought that there's something going on in this building. And Kevin, who was our guide, stopped us outside of it. It's now a bed and breakfast. And he was telling us a story about a woman who tried to take a picture of it. And she couldn't take a picture of it 
that she could take a picture of anything else other than that building, the building behind them, yada, yada, yada. And I make it a practice to tape these tours while we're taking them, number one, so that I can use them for research later, number two, to see if we pick up anything. And occasionally I do like to share some of the audio with the listeners, which is what we did on the bonus cast. So I have to sit and listen to all of it, first of all, to see if we catch anything. But mainly when the audio is going, you got to raise levels and try to take out background noise if you can. And so I was doing a lot of that. And as I was getting through listening to the recording, I noticed while we were in front of the Croke Patterson mansion that there was this weird disturbance that we'd picked up. So with great flourish, because you really have to jazz it up when you're giving a tour for only one person <laughs> to keep their interest, right? With a great flourish, I say, and now the most haunted building in all of Capitol Hill, the Croke Patterson Campbell Mansion, right? <laughs> Denise, that kind of sounds like Morse code or something. I know. It's very weird. And you said that you've never had that on the recorder ever before, right? No, I've never had it do an anomaly like that. It does it again a little bit later. And then we hear this sound. And over here is the door. So it's this kind of weird. I have no idea what that is or where that came from. The only thing I can think, because there is some story about some dogs being scared and running. Well, two of them ran to their deaths out of a window, and the other one was just a shivering mass. And it was a Doberman. Sorry, Shelby, but all of them were Dobermans. But to me, it almost sounds like a chomp, like when dogs are going... Well, since Shelby does know Doberman so well, this is how frightening whatever was in that building was. Not only did it cause a couple of them to jump to their deaths, but a third one was left in its own urine, shaking, and it was never the same again. So whatever's in that building is not nice, from what I can tell. I didn't get a nice feeling from it. No, it, I don't know that I would want to go in it maybe just because of listening to your stories. And our other listener, Miranda, who's with us, said right after we left there, she goes, did you guys feel heavy here? That's where we might have caught the anomalies on tape. That's where Diane had an experience. And um, yeah, so I don't know that I would want to go into that mansion to stay in their bed and breakfast. But you know what creeps me out is the fact that we were outside of it and across the street. When I had my experience there, I was down in the basement. So I was actually in there. But the story he was telling us, they were across the street trying to take a picture. Miranda got that weird, heavy, oppressive feeling across the street. I picked up these sounds across the street. And we weren't near any kind of electrical box or lights or anything. Well, and I know I felt really sad, but I think that was because of the dog story. Oh, that one always gets me about this. I just, you you hate to hear that. And, uh, you know, the basic story on this is about a baby as well. So, yeah. One thing that he did say is after the third dog, the city told them no more dogs. So Actually, it was the Humane Society came by and told them no more dogs. Yeah, the Humane Society came by and said no more dogs, that no more dogs could be left in that house to to guard it after three of them had been been so, so frightened. Now, I still need to go through the rest of the tapes. I've got a couple of hours worth of stuff. So we'll see if we picked up anything else along any of our other tours. And we will include some more of that audio in some other bonus casts for our supporters of the show. Yeah, maybe Diane can listen to the audio right before she kissed the sidewalk and see if something says down. There you go. Yeah, I don't think I had it on. Maybe I did. I don't know. Then you hear a big boom. (laughs) Poor Diane. And we do have some reviews to share with y'all, starting with the worst one first. And, And Denise, I don't know what the deal is. There must be something in the water. The past couple weeks, we've gotten a couple of one stars, a two star, a three star. Lots of people not liking us for some reason over the past couple weeks. Well, again, we can't be everything to everyone. So we just do the best we can. And some people will love us and some people won't. So 
And, you know, these these ones that we get all start the same. It always makes me wonder if these people aren't changing their names because they all start it with, I really wanted to love it, but. So this is three stars from Me Ma Mo 2012. While I'm usually interested in both history and spooky happenings, this podcast just doesn't come off right for me. The hosts are happy and chipper, which takes every iota of potential spookiness out of their topics. Also, with so many segments in such a short time, they don't really delve deeply into anything. It sounds more like a morning newscast treatment of stories, giving a high-level overview and just a couple of details. Like I said, I really wanted to like this and have tried several episodes skipping around. The sound quality on the early ones makes them nearly unlistenable, but it just doesn't deliver on the spooky history. So, first of all, Denise... Uh, whenever people give us a negative review, I always look to see what kinds of reviews they're giving out. And generally speaking, they're giving negative reviews to everybody. Second of all, there's two things that really piss me off when it comes to reviews. One of them is if you say stuff about my wife. And the other one is when you try to claim that we don't dig deep into our shows. Denise, the only thing I could say is do we need to go back to the dinosaur era? <laughs> is that Would that be deeper for this person? Hey, you could write a letter to Michener. He does that in his books. <laughs> He starts with the boiling of the earth under, and then it forms the islands of Hawaii. I love Michener's book, so I'm not cutting Michener, but he definitely starts back, back deep. Yeah, it just cracks me up. Really, when it comes to people like this, I'm thinking, you said you popped around to several episodes. No, you didn't, because if you did, they say, well, they have so many segments in such a short time. Denise, when you hear the term moment and oddity, how much do you think you're going to get? A moment. (laughs) I was just wondering, you know, and this day in history, those are meant to be short segments. No, a day is 24 hours. That one's way too short. <laughs> so anyway, me, Mamo, thank you for wasting your time giving us your crappy review. Um, well, honey, and, and I went to our research crew and I let them know we were going to be know. getting this review out there. And I wanted them to know I spend a lot of time doing research they spend a lot of time doing research for free. So, you know, it know, just that's makes why me you're, angry. You're especially upset because you, this person is attacking attacking the people who do such a hard job for this podcast. So Exactly. They're taking time out of their family time and their days and stuff to help us out so that we could bring more shows to people. So. Okay, then go ahead. Punch them in the face. Okay. Then we got Disney Nurse. Great show. Five stars. Anyone that likes the paranormal and the stories that go along with hauntings, then this podcast is for you. And Yo-Yo Martini, five stars, Disney history and hauntings. I love HGB. When I first started listening to the show, I expected something akin to campfire stories. I'll admit I was a little disappointed, but I was soon won over by Denise and Diane's personalities. Bonus, their quippy banter is a much needed respite, especially when the show gets too scary. See, I love always reading these after the other ones where we're not scary and our, you know, cheery attitudes take all the scariness away. This person's going, thank God. This show has it all. Disney history and hauntings. Denise and Diane are wonderful. Five stars isn't enough. Well, thank you, Yo-Yo. We appreciate that. (laughs) That almost sounds like calling the name. Thank you, Yo-Yo. And AIMX4754. Wonderful five stars. I love this podcast. I love how you get the history background on the location. And then you get the information about the hauntings and paranormal activity that goes on. I also love that Diane and Denise talk about their thoughts and what might be the cause of the hauntings. I love the chemistry that the hosts have together on the show and how they bring you in as part of their family, which is exactly what we are about. I always have a better day when I listen to them, and I love how they go above and beyond to get all of the facts. 
and information about the location they are discussing, even though we do it on the surface. Thank you for all of the amazing work you lovely ladies do for all of us. Well, thank you, AIM. Appreciate that. Thank you. So for those of you tuning in, if you have not given us a review and you'd like to give us a nice little four or five star review, we would greatly appreciate it. Take away all those bad ones that we've been getting. And we want to thank you for tuning in to this episode. I have been your host, Diane. And this has been Denise. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. We'd like to welcome new executive producer, Ren Davenport. Thanks. Fan of the show? Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast catcher. We would greatly appreciate your review at iTunes as well to help the show grow. Thank you. Societies rise and societies fall. When the time comes, one society steps forward to build a better future. The Wicked Library, Kettle Whistle Radio, Night Story Podcast, Prog Watch, Red Horse Radio, The Lift, History Goes Bump, Listen, The M Writing Podcast. Society 13, Rebuilding Society, one podcast at a time. <laughs>